Good morning. So I want to make a quick announcement. Um, Troy Anderson, our drummer, who led worship here a couple of, about a month ago, um, his wife Asia is one, 30 days away from finishing up her nursing degree. So I think she's joining us online. I want to say congratulations. 30 more days. You got this. Uh, the other thing is, um, this is a, I don't, I don't want to, I, I made a promise to God years ago, so I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to honor the promise, although it seems like I'm just trying to remind everybody that something happened to me, but 33 years ago on March 29, um, I was in a severe van accident, and the, the artery in my forearm and both nerves were severed, and almost, it was a Good Friday that year, I almost died on Good Friday, and it was Easter Sunday that we knew that I would, that I would make it, and I, there's some loss involved in that, but I have... Uh, made a promise to God that I would speak of his um, provision uh, and that I would change my nature in a way. Uh, every, every year, I, I grieve the loss of the use of my hand. Every, and every winter, I grieve the fact that it feels nothing except for cold. And I ask myself, why do I live in Michigan? Because if, it, if it's 66 degrees or warmer, my hand is fine. Anything below that, and it is painfully cold. I've talked about I'm in the search for the perfect set of gloves. We've talked about this stuff before. Here's how I, I, I've decided, this is about, about 20 years ago, because I was all caught up in the loss of, of my hand doesn't work. I can't shake hands like a normal man. Um, and, and the frustration of trying to use tools, like I can't use a pair of pliers in my right hand. Uh, but I got so caught up in the what I've lost that I didn't notice what I've gained. And so every year on the 29th uh, of March, I took this uh, Tuesday morning, I took it off just to be grateful, just to thank God. for. Here's an example. Um, my children would not exist if that van accident didn't happen. Lynn and I were just, we had just started dating. We'd been dating for a month and three days. And because of the van accident and the, the, the significant uh, convalescing that I had to do for about four months, our relationship got very real very fast. And because of that, we were married 10 months after we started dating. If that hadn't happened, there's no way we would have gone that quickly. And if we hadn't gone that quickly, all the stars, so to speak, would not have aligned. All the warp and woof of the universe wouldn't have come together to, to form Elise and to form Cameron. And there, we might have had other kids, but they wouldn't have been those. And my little granddaughter, Lucy Claire, would not exist. So God has a way of in all things, God works together for the good for those who trust in Christ Jesus and are called according to his purpose. He put an EMT off-duty and two nursing students off-duty that got their hands. This is when HIV was taking off um, in our world, and, and uh, they got their hands all in my severed artery and kept me alive. So there are thousands of things that I could look at now and see that, yes, there's some loss, but there's great gain. And it seems appropriate today to talk about grace and gratitude which sounds very familiar, guilt, grace, gratitude, sin, salvation, service. That's what the Heidelberg Catechism is all about. So I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to offer a prayer, and we're going to jump right in here. I want you to know one thing. Um, often we do, when we do a gospel between Epiphany and Easter, often we do kind of a 30,000-foot, we have to skip chapters and, and move through it. Um, this time, whether by 
design or accident, we did a kind of a deep dive for the first half of Matthew. We went through Matthew chapter 12, and then from 12 toward the end, there's some miracles which are blessed, but there's also parable after parable after parable. So we're skipping from 12 to 20 today because we're getting really close to Easter, and we got to have those scriptures line up. But I want you to know that the parable today, the only place it shows up of all four of the Gospels is in the Gospel of Matthew. And that's why we picked it for today, because you're not going to get it in any other Gospel. I will have you know, because I know there's some people that jot down in their Bibles when preachers preach on passages. We preached on this about four years ago, just a, just a little over four years ago, back in 2018. So let me pray, and we'll, we'll dive in, and I'll give you some context. Let's pray together. Lord, thank you. Yeah, just thank you. Thank you for all the good that has come from loss. We don't always see it, and sometimes we could see it, but we choose not to. I pray, Lord, that you help us see today a picture of grace, and a reason for gratitude. Speak with my mouth. Give me your thoughts. Stand in my shoes so that your people hear your message for us, not my message for them. Give us eyes to see and ears to hear and hearts to receive what you would have us see, hear, and receive. We pray this in the name of Jesus, through the power of your spirit, for the glory of God our Father. Amen. So, they're going to use a, there's a word here that's going to be used. It's very familiar with everyone. It's right near the end of the passage. Very familiar to all of us, but it gets confused often with another word that's also very familiar. The word envy and jealous. Being envious or being jealous. And so I'm just going to define those two words, biblically speaking. And I'm using a guy, Gary Collins, put it really well in, in, a, in, a, in a book called Homemade in July 1985. He says this, and I'm just going to read it. There's a distinction between jealousy and envy. To envy is to want something which belongs to another person. You shall not covet your neighbor's house, his wife, or his servant, his ox, or his donkey, or anything that belongs to your neighbor. In, in contrast, jealousy is the fear that something which we possess will be taken away by another person. Although jealousy can apply to our jobs and possessions or reputations, the word more often refers to the anxiety which comes when we are afraid that the affections of a loved one might be lost to a rival. We fear that our mates or perhaps our children will be lured away by some other person who, when compared to us, seems to be more attractive, capable, and or successful. We're going to hear the word envious today. Are you envious because I am generous, says the Lord. Um, the word envy in, in the Bible literally translates as evil eye. Are your eyes evil because I am generous? Be a little envious of someone, what they have and I kind of want or whatever. Um, that's one thing. But to, to, to have the Lord say to me, are your eyes evil is significant. So the reason this... Scholars would say a lot of different things, but, but this particular parable shows up at this particular point in the Gospel of Matthew because two things had just happened. The rich young ruler, remember that, that, that story when he, he comes up, teacher, good teacher, what must I do to, to inherit 
everlasting life. Jesus says, why do you call me good? No one's good but God alone. They have this little exchange. I've kept all the commandments since I was a kid. Um, I always do this because it's like you're on an iPhone and you're checking them all off. And, and, uh, and, and Jesus says, one thing you lack, sell everything you have, give to the poor, follow me. But what, you, what we sometimes miss when we read that passage, this is in uh, Matthew chapter 19, right at the end, is Jesus looked at him and loved him and then said, one thing you lack, sell everything you have, give to the poor, follow me. And the guy's a very rich man, so his head fell and he walked away. Jesus let him go. He didn't chase after him saying, I was being hyperbolic. I didn't mean everything, just some. It's not what he, he let him go. And then he has a conversation. It's easier for a camel to get through the eye of a needle than for a rich man to get into heaven. And then the disciples are like, who, who then? Who can get in if rich men, because rich men are blessed men in their culture. And then it ends, I'm just going to read, it's not on the screen. And Jesus, uh, after this little discussion, uh, Jesus says, with man it is impossible, but with God all things are possible. Peter answered him, we, remember that Jesus just said, it's impossible with man. Uh, It's impossible with man, but it's possible with God. And Peter says, we've left everything to follow you. What then will there be for us? I get it. Back in 2006, I had just become the lead pastor at my former charge. And we were interviewing a guy who was a friend of mine to take one of the pastoral positions. And it really wasn't best for him. It wasn't right for him. He needs to be the lead somewhere. And so he took, a, he took a call to a church in Grand Rapids. And I had been at my former charge since 1991. And he had been unemployed for about nine months. And then got hired or got called to a church in Grand Rapids off Cascade. And, and his pay was $10,000 more than me at my charge that I had served faithfully for a long time. And I remember going, what, I got to move to get a better paycheck? What? Why, why, why shouldn't I rejoice in his blessing? Why shouldn't I be thinking, God, he's been, he, he, he's been unemployed for, for almost a year, and God has just provided something where his worries of the world get to go away so he can focus on the ministry that God has called him to. But that was not my first thought. It should have been, but it wasn't. But my eyes were evil. So Jesus and Peter... Jesus has this exchange with this rich young man. He has this exchange with Peter. And then he tells the parable that only shows up here. And it reads like this. For the kingdom of heaven is like a landowner who went out early in the morning to hire men to work in his vineyard. He agreed to pay them a denarius for the day, and he sent them into his vineyard. About the third hour, so the 6 a.m., now at 9 a.m., about the third hour, he went out and saw others standing in the marketplace doing nothing. He told him, you also go work in, and work in my vineyard, and I will pay you whatever is right. So they went. He came again about the sixth hour, that's noon, and the ninth hour, that's three o'clock in the afternoon. The workday was 12 hours, so if we think we've got it bad, and those are day laborers. He went out again about the sixth hour and the ninth hour, and he did the same thing. And about the 11th hour, so 5 p.m., the workday ends at 6 p.m., about the 11th hour, he went out and found still others standing around. And he asked them, why have you been standing here all day long doing nothing? 
because no one has hired us. He said, you also go and work in my vineyard. When evening came, the owner of the vineyard said to his foreman, call the workers and pay them their wages, beginning with the last ones hired and going to the first. The workers who were hired about the 11th hour came and each received 11th, one 11th of a denarius. Nope. A full day's wage. So when those those came who, who were hired first, they kind of expected about, about 11 times more than they had been, than they had agreed to. But each one of them also received a denarius. When they received it, they began to grumble against the landowner. These men who were hired last worked only one hour. And you have made them equal to us who have borne the burden of the work and the heat of the day. But he answered one of them, friend, I'm not being unfair to you. Didn't you agree to work for a denarius? Take your pay and go. I want to give, if, if, I want to, give to the man who was hired last the same as I gave to you. I don't, have, don't I have the right to do what I want with my own money? And, or are, you, are your eyes evil because I'm generous. So the last will be first and the first last. Now there's a, there's a speaker. She's a shame researcher. Her name is Brene Brown. She came to, she grew up with some church background, but she kind of came to faith middle-aged. And she was in a, uh, in a church, and the pastor preached on this, and he got done with it, and he said, isn't that a wonderful picture of grace? And she, when she tells the story, she's like, no, that's unfair. Shouldn't the story go on that on their way home, they were struck by lightning? Something, something they got to get theirs. They got to get what's coming to them. And because these guys got gypped, and these guys got blessed, what, where, does someone win the lotto? So to her... This whole picture seems wrong. And honestly, so does grace. To get what I do not deserve is unfair. Thank God it's unfair. And the fact that God treats some people equal to me sometimes bothers me. And the fact that he treats some people better than me sometimes bothers me. And I'm using my words and I'm talking about myself, but I would bet that each one of you in some form or fashion at some time in your life has felt the same way. There's a quote, I'm going to get it right, by Blom, his name is Blomberg in a commentary on Matthew, page 303 if you want to look it up. There is nothing more unequal than the equal treatment of unequals. There is nothing more unequal than the equal treatment of unequals. These people were not equal. They might have been the same day laborer class, but some worked 12 hours for a day's wage, and some worked an hour for a day's wage. Some sweated in the field all day. Others barely lost their breath. They probably were more tired from the rush over to the vineyard than they were from working that one hour. And we look at God, if Jesus is saying this to Peter, who said, we've left 
everything to follow you. What is there for us? Jesus is questioning the motive. And I think he questions the motive of all of, the motive of, all of us. This is a picture of grace, but it's also a call to gratitude. Paul, who was Saul, who was a murderer of Christians, had an encounter with Jesus on the road to Damascus. And as a result of that, he was blinded. And he was sent off to wait. And God called a man and said, I want you to go to Saul. I know who Saul is. Don't you dare send me there. He's been killing our people. You go to Saul. And I will show him how much he must suffer for my name. Why does Saul, who became Paul, have to suffer? Isn't it about grace? Isn't it about getting what we don't deserve? Isn't it about mercy, not getting what we do deserve? That's all Peter's asking is, look, we've been with you from the beginning. The first disciple called in the book of Matthew are Peter and his brother. And then James and John. The others aren't even listed for several chapters. And they want to know, Lord, what do we get? Peter's left his wife, his mother-in-law who was sick, and then Jesus took care of that. They've been staying at his house rent-free when they were in Capernaum. What, is, what does Peter get for his devotion to God? He gets the same thing you and I get. What does Paul get for being the greatest missionary of all time, going around the known world three times, being shipwrecked, snake-bitten, or snake-bited? I don't know. I don't know. He got bit by snakes. He was whipped, he was imprisoned, he was beaten, he was spit on. What does Paul get? He gets to suffer for the name of Jesus, but I take you back to Acts with a guy named Stephen. Stephen, who had just been kind of elected a deacon, couldn't stop himself from preaching the gospel. We just heard this last week. And they tell him to shut up. No, I can't. So he kept talking, he kept talking, and they stoned him to death. But you know what was said by Stephen in the midst of that? He praised God for being declared worthy to suffer for his name. Have you suffered? Has there been pain in your life? Have you lost? If you've had a wayward child, if you've had disease, or chronic pain, and others haven't? Do your eyes not get evil on occasion? Do we not get envious? Do we not ask, why, Lord? Paul asked why. All the things he had suffered, and he cried out to God, there's one thing he couldn't get rid of. I don't think it was a semi-dead hand, but he had a thorn in his flesh. And he calls out to God. And he says, Lord, three times, he, he asked God to remove this thorn. And do you remember what God said to him? This is in 
2 Corinthians 12, 9. But he said to me, this is Paul, the greatest evangelist ever. He calls, he, he quotes God. This is what he said to me. My grace is sufficient for you. For my power is made perfect in weakness. And this is Paul's response. Therefore, I will boast all the more gladly about my weaknesses so that Christ's power may rest on me. Now, we've talked about this before. But when we say something is sufficient, like if, if, you, if your kids are doing something for you, they mow the lawn. When, you were, when they were younger, and it's a push mower, and it's a big, big yard, and they out there, they're sweating, and they're pushing, and, they're, they're, and, and, and they come in, and they go, Dad, I'm done. Where's my $2? And you go out there, and you look, and they missed all the, right around the trees. They didn't trim the lawn along the driveway. It looks okay. It looks like someone did some work, but it doesn't look good enough. And you decide, was that sufficient? Here's your $2. Or you go get back out there and finish it up. But sufficient is adequate in our language, but not in Scripture. Remember the passage that says, to him who is able to do immeasurably more than we could ask or imagine? That immeasurably more, Paul invented a bunch of words. or He put a bunch of words together. Literally, the words mean, to him who is able to do infinitely more abundantly above all we could ask or even dream up. Uper periso uper panta. Those words did not exist before. But Paul was, had no words to communicate how good and big and gracious God is. Where did he learn it? I think when he said to God, take my suffering away. And God said, my grace is infinitely more abundantly above all you could ask or even dream up. See, sufficiency in Scripture is abundant. It's cup overflowing. There's a story of a, of a pastor, um, F.B. Meyer, who was pastoring Christ Church in London. And to his right, Charles Spurgeon, one of the greatest preachers of the 20th century, was preaching at the Metropolitan Tabernacle. And G. Campbell Morgan, the other great preacher of that, of that century, was at Westminster, at Westminster Chapel. Meyer said, F.B. Meyer said, I find in my own ministry that, su- that supposing I pray for my own little flock, God bless me, God fill my pews, God send me a revival. He goes, I suppose if I pray that way, I miss the blessing. But as I pray for my big brother, Mr. Spurgeon on the right, and my, my other big brother, Mr. Campbell on the left, God bless them. I am sure to get a blessing without praying for it, for the overflow of their cups will fill my little bucket. See, there's a huge difference between seeing that God's grace is sufficient in our vernacular and understanding God's grace in the vernacular of the scriptures. When we're told to pray for those who persecute us, when we're told to love our enemies, when we're told to go the extra mile, when we're told if someone asks for your jacket, give them your shirt too. 
When we're told to, to, to treat others in, the, in a way that you would have them treat you, when we're told that, that, that do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit, but in humility consider others better than yourselves, what is God calling us to? He's calling us to experience in life the grace that he offers us by giving grace to others. I love the first song that we sang. It, it's amazing to me the concept of grace can be wonderful grace of Jesus and amazing grace. I'm not going to sing any longer than that because that's as good as I can do. It can be almost a funeral dirge and it can be this glorious, high-tempoed excitement of look at the goodness of God. It is God. God is not just a gracious God. God is grace. God is not just a merciful God. God is mercy. God is not just a loving God. God is love. All the concepts are defined by who God is. And Peter, I think there's a reason that that parable doesn't show up in Mark. Because Peter helped Mark write Mark. And Peter doesn't bring up the one when he was kind of called out on But you know what Peter does do in the Gospel of Mark that doesn't show up elsewhere? Peter's caught denying Jesus. Remember the story? And then Peter and John run to the tomb later when Jesus has risen. And they take off. Some ladies show up. And Jesus says this. Go tell the disciples and Peter that I'm going ahead of them to Galilee. Why single out Peter? He's a disciple. Because Peter needed grace again. And friends, so do I. And so do you. So I ask you to do one thing today. Look at where you're lacking. Look at what you've lost. Tell God about it. But then look at what has come from it. Because even in suffering, even in grief, even in pain, grace. God is good even when he allows things he could prevent. God shows grace to people, especially those who don't deserve it. And I'm going to tell you, folks, we often think of it that way. Grace is unmerited favor. It is getting what we don't deserve. So who deserves it? No one. And you get it anyway. Imagine the world, imagine your life if God was fair. If God gave you what you have coming. If you earned a reward today for your faithfulness before. See, we, we tend to do this, don't we? We tend to register all of our accomplishments and we kind of set aside all of our debits, all of our black marks, all of our 
thoughts, all of our messing up. And we want, I've had dozens of people sit in my office, like, I've been, I've been so good. I'm, I'm going to church, I'm reading the Bible, I'm praying, I'm, I'm giving money to the church. Why didn't God give me this sale? It's not transactional, folks. Not day to day. The only transaction that matters is that the God of the universe chose you to make you worthy of everlasting life through, from, by, and because of him. And when we get an evil eye, when we get envious, we're saying to God, I deserve more than another. If Peter doesn't deserve more than another, if Paul doesn't deserve more than another, I certainly don't. And this is not a condemnation to any of us. It's a reminder that in pain, there is grace. In grief, there is grace. In disappointment, there is grace. In sickness, there is grace. And while you're allowed to and even encouraged by Scripture to do, to cry out to God and be honest, he's not afraid of your pain. He's not afraid of your anger. He's not afraid of your frustration. He's not afraid of your disappointment in him. Cry out, but also ask him to give you eyes to see. Grace, because it is infinitely more abundantly above all you could ask or even dream up. And it is the one thing Christians have that no one else does. And God wants us to take it, to love it, and to give it away. Because the more you give it away, the more your cup is filled with it. Let's pray. Lord, thank you for this parable that I don't like but do. Thank you for Peter and his example that I don't like but do. Thank you that my first year of marriage, my wife looked at me. I was hoping she'd say I'm like a Paul, but she goes, no, you're a Peter. I love that, but I don't. And Lord, there is, there's probably that in all of us. There are times when we want to, we believe we deserve a blessing from you. When the blessing that you've already given us is your son, Jesus Christ. And we're told not to compare to others, but sometimes it's bothersome. It seems unequal that you treat others better than us. Lord, change our hearts, change our minds, and change our view so that we rejoice with others who are rejoicing and we grieve with others who are grieving. And help us understand that grace is way more than we could even dream up. We pray this in Jesus' name. Because of grace, we can. Amen.